Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. So we are in uh, school holidays at the moment, which means normally, so normally our United Kids would uh, head out to, a, to their United Kids program and our discipleship for them, but uh, we don't have that uh, this, for the next couple of weeks as our team has a bit of a rest. Uh, and so if you're a young person in our midst, uh, you'll be thrilled to be able to hear from me for a little while this morning, no doubt. Um, but as we begin, I'd love you to pray with me just for a moment. Loving God, we thank you for this time we can share together as we open your scriptures and explore what it means to live a life more centered on you. Open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. When we think of those that are going to be watching this online, right now or at some point in the future, Lord, would your spirit do a work in our hearts today and through time and space whenever people hear this to speak a beautiful and wonderful truth of your vision for humanity and for us as your followers this morning. So loving God, would the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in a series at the moment called Guardrails. And guardrails, we're all familiar with what they are. They're those things you see along the side of the roads or along paths that you walk. And the purpose of a guardrail, quite simply, is to protect us from a dangerous area, aren't they? Aren't they? Yeah, that's right. That's what they're for. Absolutely. And we see them so often that they most of the time become just a part of the background sort of radiation of life. We don't even notice that they are there. Yet we are super grateful when they are there because when we need them, there they are to stop us. But the thing about a guardrail is that a guardrail doesn't necessarily completely protect you from harm. A guardrail is actually designed to minimize harm. You might not have realized this, but The guardrails that you see on the side of the road, the ones with the great big steel cables, you see those along all the the highways here and around Gawler, those steel cables are not designed to stop you at all. They're designed to direct you. So the, the, the theory is that that steel cable will veer you back on course in some form and stop you, basically stop you from going to the worst possible place you can go when you're driving 110 kilometers an hour. And where is that? Across the other side of the road. And so a guardrail in this instance isn't to protect your car from no damage, it's to protect you from the worst situations we could possibly imagine. But see, guardrails don't just exist in vehicle life, driving, things like that. 
Guardrails can exist in all parts of our life. And I would suggest, and what we've been exploring in this series, is that they should exist in all sorts of different parts of our life. Relationships, finances, moral boundaries, professional ethics. All of those areas of our life could benefit from a guardrail or two if we look closely enough. And so guardrails within the context of anything but driving, we could define it like this. Guardrails are wise standards of behavior that shape our conscience. Wise standards of behavior that shape our conscience, our thinking. That when we step over one of them, we don't step into danger, but instead something pings in our mind and says, oh, there's danger close. Let's not go there. Because one of the things about guardrails is that guardrails aren't in the danger zone, are they? Where do we set up a guardrail? In the safety zone. There's no point setting up a guardrail off the edge of the cliff, is there? It's very rarely actually helpful to put a guardrail on the edge of the cliff. No, no, we put the guardrail a few meters back from the edge of the cliff in the safe zone. Because it gives us the margin for the guardrail to protect us. Should we still choose, for whatever reason, to proceed past it? And so when we talk guardrails throughout this whole series, and particularly the topic for today, it might seem a little silly, a bit countercultural, to put guardrails in safer zones. But the whole point, my friends, is to keep us safe from harm. And we can't do that if the guardrails are on or over the edge of the problem areas. And my hope for this series is that this series is helpful for everyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not. I don't know your situation. I don't know who of you is joining us online and where you're at in terms of following Jesus. But my hope is this series could be helpful. Because no matter your age, no matter your stage of life, whether you're a young family or, or married or single or, or, um, or whether you have uh, retired or whether you're widowed and lost your spouse, whatever your age and stage of life or whatever your context, I believe we can benefit from guardrails in some form. And so this series is really doing two things for us. It's in, one, it's inviting you and me to think about where we could use some guardrails in our life. Simple as that. Makes good sense, right? But the second thing that we're doing is that we're presenting some wisdom and some truth that we find in Scripture about what we believe God has to say about living a life for our best, a life that is helpful, a life that is to the fullest, because we believe the rhythms we see in Scripture, the principles in Scripture are what God has to tell us about living a life of fullness. And so, Scripture has some things to say about all the areas we're talking about, and that's... So, this series has felt, so I'm hearing, and I agree with this, has felt a little bit self-helpy, hasn't it? Of oh, these are some, just some good things and whatever, it's great. But the reason is, is because we need help so often, and we ground it in the truth of Scripture with the whole idea that you and I can make some better decisions and live with fewer regrets in Jesus' name. 
And so one of the tensions we've encountered with this whole series is that our culture doesn't like guardrails. It's actually happy with guardrails, with driving and stuff like that, that's great. But when it comes to guardrails in the rest of our life, it doesn't like them. They're lame. You might think they're lame. Josh, that's not, there's no risk in that. Where's the fun? Josh, that's, that's so old-fashioned. That's so 2,000 years ago. How is that relevant to me today? That's the narrative that our culture tells us when we talk about guardrails, when we start actually taking things seriously. And I've got to tell you, especially for today's topic, which I'll get to. I know I, can't, I can tell you on the edge of your seat. I've got to tell you, no, sorry, I'll get to it. So last week, last week, Kath talked about friendship guardrails, that our friends have a significant impact on the trajectory and quality of our life, don't they? The people we surround us, ourselves with have a significant impact on the trajectory and quality of our life. And so we owe it to our future self to think seriously about where we might need some guardrails in our personal relationships. And if we're, if we're honest, we actually recognize, and this is not just young people, this is anybody, we might recognize when we look seriously, there's some people around us that are just not a good influence for us. They might not be encouraging you to go out partying and take drugs, although they might. That's not an age-specific thing either, by the way. But it might be that their, their priorities are just totally different. That they're, not, that they're saying, oh, don't worry about church anymore, that's, you, you don't need to, you've, you've done your time, so just get to church when you feel like it. And It could be, oh, but you don't really need to worry about giving or whatever, but just because it's, you know, that's old-fashioned and we don't trust the church with it anyway. So it could be the people you surround yourself with, the narratives, impact the trajectory and quality of our life. And sometimes, we, if we're honest, we need some wisdom with who it is we spend some time with. So that was last week. So this week, we're going to talk about the least, my least confident topic, as in I don't want to talk about this today. And having spent eight, nine weeks out of the pulpit, this was not what I wanted to talk about this morning. I wanted something fluffy and encouraging and these sorts of things. But today we're talking about sex. I saw a few eyebrows. We're talking about marriage. And we're talking about helpful choices. We're talking about sex. We're talking about marriage. And we're talking about helpful choices. And my hope today, and some of you parents are like, man, why didn't we have United Kids this morning? Can I send my kids out now or do something, you know? What's Josh going to say? Well, you trust me, right? All right, that's good enough. But my hope today is to share some guardrails with you. And how guardrails can hopefully, and how they should probably be playing a role in your and my sexual integrity in life. How guardrails can guard our marriage. How guardrails can guard ourselves for marriage, if we're not married yet. And how guardrails can ultimately protect someone else's marriage because that's God's vision for us. And if I'm honest, this is the most needed, but also the most resisted area of all in our culture. Why? Because everything around us, nearly every piece of entertainment that we consume, 
has a very different message about sexuality and sexual ethics than Scripture. You might have a very different understanding of sexual ethics than Scripture. And that's okay. You don't have to do what I say. But what I would love you to do today is listen to what myself and a bunch of other scholars have researched about this and think seriously about what it might mean for your life. And the thing about culture is that culture, when it comes to our sexual integrity, is really good at baiting us towards compromising our sexual integrity, on the one hand, and minimizing its significance on our life. It's really good at that, our culture. But then, whilst it's done that, it's minimized its significance, and it's baited us towards compromising it, but then it's really good at shaming us and cancelling us and cancelling anyone that has a moral failure, is it not? It's really good at baiting us and then it's really good at cancelling us and shaming us when we get it wrong. And I believe, friends, that if we can get this right, if as followers of Jesus we can get this right, we present a radically different way of life that allows sex and sexual integrity to be something that builds up families, to be something that builds up a community of faith, rather than being the thing we consistently hear about that rips down families, that rips down communities, that destroys the integrity of leaders because it seems that that's all we ever read about when it comes to sexual integrity. And so this is not the message that I'd hope to share on my first Sunday back. But I'm here and you're here, so let's go. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12 through to verse 20. And it will be on the screen if you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to to open to it if you want to follow along, because I'm going to be bouncing in and out of the passage rather than reading it in one chunk. And the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth in the ancient world. Corinth was a cosmopolitan place, full of all sorts. If you had enough money, you could do whatever you wanted. And there was very little in terms of overall governance of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. And so when a church pops up, and a church is planted there, and people are discovering how to follow Jesus, they are confused when they see the culture around them, and they see and hear about how Jesus is calling us to live our life, and what the Apostle Paul is teaching, they get confused, and they don't know what to do with it. And so the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to them, and in fact, it's a letter to all the church, you and us as well, about sexual integrity and about being together as a community. So that's our context So let's do it. Verse 12. Paul quotes the Corinthians and he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Paul qualifies it. I have the right to do anything, you say, but Paul qualifies it, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul begins this discussion by introducing the tension that we have in our life between freedom in Christ and absolute freedom of will. You and I can do anything we want, right? 
And if we pray to God afterwards and say, sorry, we're forgiven, right? So that means we can do anything, doesn't it? No? Yes? Is there anything in life that we cannot be forgiven for? No. So surely, the Corinthian church is thinking, it. Well, surely, if we've heard about this freedom in Christ, let's, let's just do whatever we want because we can pray afterwards and leverage God's promise of forgiveness to get away with it, right? Paul qualifies that perspective and he says, well, yeah, you can, technically, because God's grace is, is infinite. God's love is extraordinary. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything's wise. Come on, guys, you know this. And Jesus also teaches us that we will not be mastered. We should not have any other masters but God. And some of the things we choose to do, some of the things you're choosing to do, Paul says, is not beneficial and is leaving you a slave to something, addiction, whatever. That we are called to live a life of freedom, but a life of freedom from the things that might make us a slave. And they continue, they, he quotes them again, he says, You say that food is for the stomach, and stomach for food. Makes sense, that's what the stomach's for, consuming food. But God's going to destroy them both. So God, at the, come the end of things, God is going to destroy the food when all the, when, when in the reconciliation of all things, and God's going to destroy the stomach because, you know, we're, we're made of, we're just flesh and bones and things like that. And so you've got this food made for the stomach and stomach for food. And Paul uses that statement to illustrate the attitude that they had around sex and sexual integrity. Because it seemed that there was a pervasive thought process consistent with food for the stomach and stomach for food. My appetite for sex is made, is, is given to me by God. And the act of sex is used to satiate that appetite, right? And so, my appetite for sex is made for sex, and sex is made for my appetite. And if God is going to consume both of them, what does it matter what we do sexually with our bodies? If our body's temporary, then let's just live it up, right? And I've got to tell you, this is 2000, that's an ethic 2,000 years ago. Have you heard that narrative lately? In our culture? Anywhere? Friends, it is everywhere. It is the only narrative being spoken into the lives of our young people today. It is the only one. That your sexual desire is made for you. And sex is designed to be what is, what satiates that desire. And so, given that your body is just transient and whatever, just go and have sex with whoever you want. It's fine. But what I want to say to you this morning in Paul's perspective is that if there is a God and if God created us, knows us and loves us, then we need to rethink our attitude around sex and around sexual fidelity because it matters. We're not just some transient being. We are one being, soul, mind, body, spirit. And whatever we do with our bodies, we do with our spirits and they are connected but he gets to that. Here's why Paul continues. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. See, he reuses their saying. He says, our body isn't made for sexual immorality. Our body's made for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
by his power, God raised the Lord, that is Jesus, from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul said, I'm not quite sure, I don't exactly understand how this is going to work, but come at the end of things, just the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, so you and I, as followers of Christ, will be raised. We don't know what that looks like. I'm sure there's going to be a complication that doesn't help in, in our minds. We don't quite understand how that's going to work, but if God values our bodies enough that we will be raised in the last days, as Paul's talking about it, then we can't detach our physical actions from our soul and our spirit. The two are truly intertwined. And I want to stop here, and this term sexual immorality comes up for the first time. The word that the Paul uses here is porneia. And porneia, if I want to summarize all of my research and scholarship, I've got to tell you that most of my sermon prep went into this word and figuring out how it applies to us. Porneia can be defined as any act of sexual relations other than with a spouse. Any act of sexual relations other than with a spouse. So when Paul talks about sexual immorality, what he's actually saying is any act of sex outside of marriage, any act of sex with a prostitute, which we'll get to that, any act of sex with someone that isn't your wife or husband or spouse. So that's what we're talking about. I'll explain that a little bit more. He continues, Do you not know that our bodies are, Christ's, are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Should I take the members of Christ and just to let them have sex with whoever they want? Would we unite them with a prostitute? No. If you're not familiar with what a prostitute is, it's someone who sells their body to allow someone else to have their way with them sexually. Once again, I apologize to you parents in the room. You're going to have some real conversations to have later on today. Send me an email. It'll be great. What Paul says in this passage in verse 15, he's actually, it's a, like a hyperbolic statement. He says, can you imagine Jesus sleeping around? Jesus, the Son of God, lived a sinless, perfect life. Can you imagine Him sleeping around? No. Never. And as His followers, you and I, we're connected to Christ. We are one with Him. As I mentioned in the communion, we are united with Christ. And so what we do, we carry Christ around with us. So what we do is as if Christ is doing it in, with, and through us. And so if we would never consider that Jesus would be sexually immoral, why do we think we should be able to, says Paul. And he continues, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. It's a really interesting statement that Paul makes here. And this is going to be about as, as in-depth Bible study that I get preaching, but I need you to stick with me. 
Paul makes an interesting statement that sheds light on something really significant about the nature of sex and what it was designed to achieve. And you might, you might agree with this, you might disagree, but you can't disagree with the logic of as the argument as Paul presents it. See, the common argument that forms the foundation of the prevailing sexual ethic in most Christians and the, almost the entire world, if you're a Gen X or below, it's far less pervasive in the older generations, but if you're a Gen X or below, so that's like in your 50s and below, this is the sexual ethic that we are taught or that we understand. And it's that word that pornea, sexual immorality, is also translated as harlotry or prostitution. And so, for most people in our culture now, they would say that sexual immorality, the thing that Paul's actually talking about here, is really he's just talking about prostitution. He's actually not talking about sex between two people that love one another. If you love one another, you're, you're basically married. And so, so, therefore, if you're intending to get married and you love one another, so therefore sex should be fine, right? Have you ever had a young person tell you that? That's the sexual ethic that I hear when I talk to young people. They're like, well, it's okay for us to live together because we plan to get married, so it's all good that we have sex. But that doesn't work here. Why? Because Paul, for some reason, uses two different terms when he, when he, when he talks about having sex with a prostitute or this, um, this term of sexual immorality. He uses two different terms for the unity that is experienced when a person has sex with a prostitute and by extension someone that isn't, that they're not married to. There's two terms. He uses a first term which is joining or the term used to, about glue, uniting. That when, you, when they have sex, they're united together physically. That's no surprise. We know how that works. But the second thing he talks about is he talks about one flesh. And now, is he just saying the same thing over again? That the unity sexually and the one flesh, are they the same thing or are they something different? And when you, if, if you read it, it makes no sense that they would mean the same thing because it's, it makes no sense that Paul would repeat himself by saying, do you not know that having physical union with a prostitute, but by, by having physical union with a prostitute, you're having physical union with a prostitute? That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. So what does Paul mean? Paul means the, the term one flesh. Where have we heard it before? Genesis chapter 2. For a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The picture of marriage, the picture of unity. The union between a man and a woman, between a woman and a man, on all levels of their lives. To become one flesh is to become one new person, a new unit, a new entity. It's completely different to what you were before, fully transformed by that which the other that you have sex with, is giving to you. Tim Keller, a biblical scholar and pastor, writes it this way. So when Paul uses this word, porneia, about the case of sex with a prostitute, he cannot mean that one is automatically married in some kind of magical way. Rather, Paul is decrying, the powerful language here, the monstrosity of physical oneness without all the other types of oneness that sex is meant to actually mirror. Paul, he says... 
here displays a psychological insight into human sexuality, which is altogether unique and exceptional by first century standards. He insists that it is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality of a person in such a way as to constitute a unique model of self-disclosure and self-commitment. In short, sex, as Paul writes it here, with a prostitute, but sexual immorality with anyone that isn't the spouse, is wrong because every sex act is supposed to reflect an absolute and complete covenant unity. There must be no physical union unless there is also every other kind of union, legal union, economic, personal, emotional, social, and spiritual. There must be one unity. There must not be one of those unity, or that that one unity, without all the others. C.S. Lewis likened sex without marriage to tasting without swallowing and digesting. It is just a shallow form of that which is otherwise designed as something extraordinary. And if we're honest, this view clashes heavily with our cultural view of sex and sexual integrity. Sex in our culture is qualified by attraction on the surface, isn't it? Friends with benefits, heard that statement before? That friends with benefits type level, or feelings of love in a longer term relational context, those are the qualifiers for sex now. If you've got either of those two things, either a a surface level attraction or even a long term commitment of some form, then sex between two consenting adults is fine. But Paul suggests something radically different. Sex isn't merely a self-expression of a satiation of desire. It's a completely giving of oneself to another. It's the participation in a unity that is designed to reflect the self-giving love of God to us through Jesus Christ and the giving of our whole life in response back to God. So when you become a follower of Jesus... God's given His life to us through Christ. And what does He call for us to give Him in response? Everything. Everything. And so, friends, sex is actually, between two people, is meant to reflect, it's a God-given gift that's meant to reflect the two-way union that you and I have with our loving Heavenly Father, our God, through Christ. Do you realize that? God held nothing back for us from us when He gave us His Son Jesus on a cross to conquer sin and to restore us to relationship with Him. He gave us He held nothing back. And God doesn't ask us to give Him part of our life. He asks us to give Him all of our life. So Paul's, Paul's point is that sex is meant to be a reflection of the gospel. And the only way it can be is in the context of two people fully committed to one another in every area and aspect of their life. And that, my friends, only exists in marriage centered on God. And he continues in verse 18. So what do we do? Well, Paul says, I'll tell you what we do. Flee! Flee then! from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. 
But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples, a dwelling place of who? The Holy Spirit talking to Christians as a follower of Jesus. When we accept Christ into our life, we become temples of the Holy Spirit, a place where the Holy Spirit resides. We were given it from God. And he continues, you are not your own because you were also bought at a price. Therefore, simply, honour honor God with your bodies. So in this closing content, Paul gives us three reasons that we need to get this right. The first reason that he tells us to get this right is that term sexual sin. He term, he, this is the first time he brings up the word sin. In the New Testament, this term sin, frankly, quite, quite simply means hurting, stealing, or dishonoring another person. That's what sin means in its simplest form. And by doing that, by extension, you hurt, steal from, dishonor God because He loves the people, every other person in this planet. He loves them. He loves you. And you can't be okay with God if you're okay with someone that He loves. You can't, be, you can't hurt my daughter and be okay with me. It doesn't work. It impacts our relationship if you hurt my daughter. The same is true of God and us, right? So Paul is saying that when you sleep around... Don't miss this. No, she's staying. Cool. When you sleep around, you're stealing something unique. You're stealing something unique from. You're hurting. You're dishonoring every person that you sleep with. You're stealing from their future spouse. Because from that moment on, they don't have the ability to give everything that they have sexually. They've already given something away. Because when we sleep around, every person that we sleep with starts holds something of the everything that we're meant to give. But he also says that you hurt yourself because you sin against your own body. You undermine your capacity for future intimacy. As you no longer have a full self to offer. That's the first thing. The second thing is, as followers of Jesus, when you accepted Christ, you were blessed with the Holy Spirit. You are a temple, a sacred place designed to reflect the love of God in the world. And so we need to get this sexual immorality stuff right, because when we don't, the Spirit is wounded on our behalf. And thirdly, he says that God actually paid for you. That what God paid to renew the relationship with us through Jesus Christ was the highest cost that anyone has ever paid, the highest cost that could be paid, the Son of God. And what that says is that you and I have extraordinary value, because what is the value of something? The value of something, as we're discovering from the house prices around here lately, the value of something is what someone is willing to pay for it. And so the fact that God gave His Son for you and for me 
tells us how extraordinarily valuable we are because God was willing to pay his son's life for you. You have extraordinary value. Your value is immeasurable. And so in light of the selfishness of sexual sin, in the light of the way that we are designed to reflect God's love by the Spirit given within us, and in the light of the extraordinary value that Christ has paid for us to redeem us, Paul says the best thing that you can possibly do is honor God with your bodies. It matters. And it matters for all the reasons that I have explained and a bunch of other practical ones as well that I'm not even going to go into. The practical problems of having sex with someone you're not married to, you can use your imagination and figure some of those out. No contraception is 100% reliable. You start with that one and go from there. So quite separate to all the practical stuff, Paul quite simply says, and he labors it, and so I sort of have labored it a little bit. He labors it and says, this matters. This matters. And if you hear nothing else, this matters. So what do we do, Paul? We flee, he says. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Flee from it. Don't walk as close to the edge as possible, hoping that you don't fall off. Flee from it. Flee from it. Create space, create margin. Create distance from sexual sin. And that looks like guardrails. See, I got back to it. That looks like creating guardrails. And rather than just leave you with good luck with that, have fun, create some guardrails if you think it's of value, I wanted to offer some suggestions of some things that I've picked up, either, if I'm honest, through my mistakes, through my close calls, with sexual integrity, through the wisdom that my mentors and my parents have taught me over the years, or my journeys pastorally with people whose sexual integrity has meant their life has fallen apart. I want to offer you some guardrails which, as far as I have seen it, could be helpful to you. And this applies no matter your age or stage. See, but you can think what you like about these. You can call Josh an old fuddy-duddy if you want. They might seem excessive, they might seem silly, they might seem unrealistic, but I don't really care, to be honest. Because the thing about guardrails is that they're unique. They're unique to each one of us. Because my life is not like yours. Your life is not like mine. Your stage of life is different to mine. You might be better looking than me. So you've got at higher risk, I don't know. But the whole point of guardrails is that we figure this out for ourselves about what is needed to help us succeed in this area. And so here's a couple of suggestions from me. The first one is this. 
If you're in a marriage or a serious relationship, I encourage you to actually talk about sexual integrity. Talk about the sorts of situations that you or your spouse or your partner are comfortable with when, as it relates to spending time with someone, with, men or, with other men or women. You should probably avoid one-on-one situations with other men or women that foster intimacy, long car trips, eating meals together, one-on-one, candlelight dinners with someone that isn't your spouse, not a good idea. Late meetings with no one else around. I don't know what that looks like for you in your age and stage. But that one, this is a rule of mine. This is a rule that I have in place in my life. That Eloise and I talk about the different one-on-one interactions I have with members of the opposite sex. No matter the age, no matter the stage, Eloise knows my calendar and we talk, we've talked about what's, what we both consider as appropriate because this matters. Not so that I don't step over the edge, but so that I'm not even close to the edge. So that no one could say something of me and we've seen pastors fall from this, have we not? Men and women in leadership have fallen from this. So I don't even step close to the edge in this sort of area. And I get that this isn't always practical. And so that sort of lends into the second one. If you do need to do this stuff, one-on-ones and things like that, be open and honest with your partner about it. You've got nothing to hide, right? You caught up with someone one-on-one for dinner of the opposite gender, you tell your spouse about it. Tell them in advance if you can. Because you've got nothing to hide, right? But I've got to tell you, the second that you hesitate from telling your spouse or your partner about spending one-on-one time with someone of the opposite sex should be all the alarm bells you ever need. Why would you not tell them? What have you got to hide? All the guardrail you need to perhaps consider making some different different choices and steering clear of that danger zone. Three, don't get involved with counselling people. You're not a counsellor, unless you are. And then there's a professional thing going on. Don't get involved with counselling people. This one's a bit hard for us as Christians because we're caring and loving, well, most of us, and we, we like to think we are on a good day. We're caring and loving and we listen to the hurts and pains of others, right? Because we want to care. But friends, I've got to tell you that one of the riskiest places for us to be in terms of sexual Integrity is sitting across from someone, eye to eye with them, as they share their deepest hurts and pains with us. It's dangerous because they're vulnerable, they're hurting, and we don't know what's going on for us either, but why would we put ourselves there? And we're not counsellors, and if we're honest, most of the advice we give isn't that great anyway, with that sort of thing. So avoid it altogether. Let the counsellors do the counselling. And when you notice affection forming with someone other than your spouse, this is the fourth one. You need to say something to someone. It doesn't need to be your spouse or your partner. It could be someone else completely. But when you notice it, say something. Why? Because when you speak about it, it actually disarms it. 
Speaking a secret to Psalms a secret. And so it could be all that is needed to help with that guardrail is to talk about it with someone that you care about. And the last one is probably more pervasive in our age. Avoid consistent and significant conversations with members of the opposite sex in, on social media. Don't do it. Josh, that's so lame. But what, is, what has social media done for us now? Yeah, honey, I'll be there in a sec. Yeah, 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 no worries, darling. Yep. Yeah, love you too. Have a good day at work. I don't even have to be in the same room as someone to have an intimate conversation now. And my wife never has to know if I've got a pass lock on this. Now, you might not have a smartphone, you might not have Facebook and all that. Good, in that sense. But friends, we are more connected than we've ever been. We have higher risk of these connections than we ever have. So be careful with this. And so this might all seem a bit extreme, but dangerous environments need solid guardrails. Dangerous environments need solid guardrails. We don't make the, the guardrail on the side of a highway made of fairy floss. We make it of steel cables and stone because an extreme situation needs an extreme solid guardrail. And there's, always, there's almost nothing that can damage you. Almost nothing, hear this, almost nothing that can damage you professionally, emotionally, and spiritually than infidelity or sexual sin. Almost nothing. It is really that dangerous. It is. And so I want to ask you another, I want to ask you to consider a question as we close. And I'll talk for a while. But I want to ask you a question to consider as we close, as you think about, is this helpful for me, is it not? Where else? Which area of our culture equips you to develop sexual integrity? What of the TV, advertising, movies, music, Netflix, Instagram, or books that you consume each week, can you point to one of those that helps you succeed with sexual integrity? Any of those? No. No one is talking about this. No one is talking about this. And there's nowhere else in our culture that sexual integrity in singleness or in marriage is talked about as a virtue and a value. So friends, it becomes our choice. We can flirt or we can flee. We can flirt or we can flee. Fleeing isn't popular, certainly. But if you take this seriously, and if you're not married, if you're yet to be married, or if you have been married, whatever that looks like, if you take this seriously, if you put guardrails in place, I promise you, 
I promise you from the bottom of my heart, you will never regret it. Never. Ever. Ever. And neither will your kids. And neither will your spouse. And neither will their kids. And neither will the people that matter to you most in life. So guardrails. We need them more than we ever realize. And when it comes to sexual integrity, we need them before we ever get close to the edge. So consider what Paul says. Consider everything that I've said. And would you flee from sexual immorality so that your life, so that our life, can be one that powerfully witnesses the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. So let's pray together. Loving God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way this speaks into our hearts and into our life. And, and I've got to tell you, Lord, this is hard because this message is so different to what everyone else is saying to what everything else is saying. So Lord, would you give us the grace to receive this? Especially when we don't want to. Especially when we think we've got this covered. Because Lord, we know that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and that the enemy is a liar. And so the enemy will tell us we've got the control when we don't. And that is why you give us the wisdom to put guardrails in place to keep us and those we love and ultimately your name safe in one of the areas that matters the most. So Lord, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today? Give us the wisdom to put some guardrails in place, either of what I've said or what of someone else, what, what we think of ourselves. Give us the wisdom to know how to live this out. Most of all, Give us the courage to do it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks, team.